0: So the suddenness and the fragility of situations is so acute, and therefore, 95% of us anyway get into for herd mentality. And when the herd mentality and you you know you go to Africa in, in, in August and you see, uh, you know the the migration, it's what is it a migration? You're following the person in front of you and you're watching the bum of the person in front of you and you're just going to follow them madly. So when herd mentality changes, it's going to change overnight. So I think for entrepreneurs, more than this, it is going to be more and more sudden. It's going to be more and more fragile. It's going to be more and more extreme, both the up and the down. And people will have to just learn to live with that and deal with that and be proactive about that. And leadership is going to be tested more on those. Today, it is 10 times more important about that one thing that you got wrong versus the 19 things you got right. Unfortunately... That's why you'll need to be restless. Restless in Mumbai, restless in Bangalore, restless in Seattle, you'll need to be restless because you don't have a choice. You need to be restless because you
1: don't have a choice. Those are words you expect to hear from a 30 something tech founder building a chat GPT powered neo startup. But Ronnie Skruwala, whose voice you just heard, is 67. And trust me when I say this, I haven't seen many 30-something founders who are as restless, ambitious, and driven as he is. Ronnie is the chairperson and co-founder of UpGrad, an online higher education company last valued at over $2.2 billion. He despises the phrase EdTech, but that's not all he does. He's the co-founder of Swades Foundation, a philanthropic organization that works across 2,000 villages in the state of Maharashtra. He runs RSVP Movies, a film production company, and much more. Welcome back to First Principles, the fortnightly leadership podcast from the Ken. This is episode 18, and I am Rohind Kumar, your host. Stay with me for a wonderful conversation with Ronnie Skruvala about ambition, organization building, online education, and long-term thinking. Ronnie, it's very hard for me to put a easy definition around everything that you're involved with. There's Upgrad, there's Unilaser Ventures, there's Swades, there's RSVP, which is a media production house, and there's other things as well. So I will ask you to tell me what all are the areas where Ronnie Skruwala, the entrepreneur, is involved in?
0: So I think two common themes, since you're looking for a common theme and a hook. One is impact. Second is um, enjoy and joy at work. Um, And third is um, just a deep penetration and being involved. I want to roll up my sleeves and do that. So to simplify that, I think I don't normally break up my day and you say, what's a typical day look like? It doesn't. But maybe what is a typical week look like? I think a fair part of my time right now is to, to push the envelope, open the market and disrupt the sort of learning, skilling, and workforce development market around the world. Um, I think Swades, by the way, for people who actually think this has only been the last 10 years, I started the foundation along with my wife um, in my 20s. We just renamed it Swades after one of our movies, and we can talk about that. So that that I think is it's a it's a it's a very strong root. And I think my allegiance to get into even educational learning came because we were working with about 1,200 schools and Anganabadi's in rural India. And That was my trigger point that says, if this is where we are here, what does one need to do with the landscape? And movies, um, it's an unfinished story, as storytelling goes, right? Because I exited the company in 2012 to Disney at the land of five-year non-compete. So to me, it's a hobby, it's a passion. And I think it's a very important one because of the simple reason that when it's a hobby, The most important thing is 99% of the things you do, you want to do. And 1% you have to do. Whereas when you're running a business, I think half of the things you do, you have to do. And half of the things you want to do. So the powerful part of having a hobby that balances my life today is the power to say no. And that allows me to filter, filter, filter down to the stories I want to tell. A, not look at it as a business. So all the compulsions that go with that. Um, Yeah. And I think so... That's the fun part. Some people play golf and I like I like to read scripts. I like to make movies and occasionally go and cheer our kabaddi team or our table tennis team. Yeah, that's our- a fifth one, right? You sports. That's right. Yeah, I mean, fourth in, in that category. But yes, I think so. I think learning, skilling, workforce development, no, and no, not-for-profit. I'm, I'm just trying to count back. There's Upgrad, there's unilater Ventures. So Unilaser Ventures, I agree. Actually, that's just a investment vehicle. And mm-hmm. I have to say that within two years of my divesting UTV to Disney, uh, I kind of realized that I'm somebody who wants to build, not invest. And it is fabulous, because I think I've had some great uh, investments that I did, Lenskart and many others, and worked through with the founders in an early stage. But to me, I wanted to go out and build something. You know, when you're interacting with founders, it's great. See, mentorship, I'm not big on mentorship, and I think everyone looks at that, and we can talk about what mentorship means to different people. But uh, I think if you're talking to an entrepreneur as an investor, and you give him 10 ideas, and if he takes eight, you know you're in trouble in your investment, right? Because that means... What is the person thinking and what are they doing? So if you're giving one or two, and nothing is yours really. And I think I go back to my early days when I first had to go and tell my parents at that stage when entrepreneurship was not even a word, but you wanted to branch out and not do a job, which means you were riffraff. So at that stage, I think when I sort of, when my dad asked me two things, I mean, why? And I said, I just don't think I can implement somebody else's vision. And I'm somebody who feels I need to implement my own vision, which I think was an evolved statement at that early stage in life. Um, and the second, of course, was a more scary one for him. He says, so what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. All I know is I want to do something on my own. At that time, I wasn't dead clear I wanted to do cable TV or media or whatever else. So long and short of your question, if you're looking for a hook, it's all of these. Ronnie, how old are you? 67. Now, I'm going to ask you
1: something, which is... You, you said something very interesting, which is, I'm a builder. I want to build. One of the common themes that I hear from a lot of the younger generation is that people are, I want to earn enough so that I can retire and not work. Right. Um, I want to have my money work for me. I want to stop doing these things that I don't enjoy. And yet you're at this stage of your career saying, I can't stop. I want to build more things. Yeah. Why? What? I mean, if I could just like, uh, you know, the the obvious question is, why not at this? Like, you know, a lot of the people in your cohort would have said, I'm going to step back. I'm going to do passive investing. I'm going to mentor.
0: What's leading you in the other direction? So a couple of things I would say. Firstly, different strokes for different folks. So uh, each one to their own. Second, I think the grass is never greener on the other side. And most people who are aspiring to do that, I think, will figure out what that means to each one. That doesn't mean that people won't do it. Um, So each one has to look at it from their own sense. For me, I think the higher impact is, and I think that's what especially a country like India needs. You know, when we we looked at what we wanted in a not-for-profit space... We didn't want to go with the conventional philanthropy approach. We didn't want to go out and cut checks. We were very clear we wanted to go out and do an execution foundation. So it's the same that applied to me, that why in swadesh have we got 300 people? Why are you out there? Why do you want to look at geographies with three or four hours close proximity? Because you want to go spend overnight in the villages with people. That is because I think today, when you want to build something to outlast and to really last, you need to be deeply involved. And I think even leadership, a lot is about delegation, and everyone's a lot has been said. But in the 50% that you need to unlearn about leadership in the 21st century versus even what was relevant 10 years back is the absolute challenge of managing the macro and the micro. And I think it's lovely if somebody wants to do that. It's a nice phrase that says, I make my money work for me. And you can read that for a Warren Buffett, whatever else. And that's great. I mean, that's that's the DNA. But at the time in which they started and what they wanted to do, let's cut to the 50s or the 60s when they were in their 90, uh, 50 years old and 60 years old, what they decided to do was deeply get involved in an entire sector. I think when people today look at it, they look at a it flip-flop. It's like, I just can't understand where some of the, the recent angel investors keep saying, I do 100 investments. And I'm saying, yeah, but why? I mean, why? Is that a formula? Is that an algorithm? Because that algorithm is not going to work. And, you know, I, I think today leadership is about less for more. It's completely about less for more. What does that mean? Meaning you do less for higher impact. Mm-hmm. And I think that focus is missing. So flipping and flopping around the place. And I know mm-hmm. your first question is, but you're doing four things. Actually, I'm in a sense, not. Because they're all focused to very deep involvement to make an impact. One in the for-profit space with learning and skilling. One in the not-for-profit space. The rest is recreation. That's how I look at it my breakup
1: do you have a sense of unfinished business that is also pushing you forward because one of the things also is that when people don't stop we're saying that like i'm going to take it easy now there is some kind of like a challenge or like you know unfulfilled purpose that's pushing you forward
0: is there anything else that like you know so i look at it this way i look at the fact that i think i come from a lower middle class background and I use soft skills, not hard skills, because I didn't really study that much, um, to get further in life. Um, And therefore, the, the field that I'm in right now or the status that I'm in right now, I feel blessed. And I think anyone who feels blessed needs to actually always be unfinished business. That's how it should work in that. Because if you're in a position where you can influence, influence minds, influence people, make a change in any small way, build a model, you need to do that. You absolutely need to do that. Now, mentorship, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I have a different view on mentorship, and I think that one can do taking a walk in the morning. I don't need to spend my whole day doing that. And I don't mean to disregard that as a as a less worthy scheme. As I said, always, it's each one to their own. But to me, I wouldn't call it unfinished business, but I would call it, I feel blessed with a lot of things from where I've come in life, and therefore I feel It's not about giving back. It's that I I need to be involved. These are my strengths. This is what I do. I can't picture myself doing anything else because when I want to have fun, you know, one can sit on the beach, but that's an illusionary, hallucinating thought that you can do that every day of your life, right? And it's also one that says, I love reading. I'll read whenever I want to. I spend enough time with the family and do whatever it is that I pick and choose. And I think that's very important. To me, being independent is very important. And what I mean, I don't need to be dependent on what I want to necessarily do right now in my life. That gives me. Work. Sorry, what does that mean? So I think work life balance for me is being independent. I'm not dependent. I'm not dependent that if I don't do this and I don't do that, I'm. I mean, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, funding. It's a freedom to do things because funding you is a choose crutch. to do. I've funding it. is a crutch, for example. If I just, on your show, it'll be relevant to talk about. You're not. You're always dependent. You're building a model that, of such high dependency. So, to me, if I'm but creating don't you have
1: that with Upgrad?
0: Considering no, that you've raised over six hundred million dollars. No, I haven't raised six hundred million dollars. I've raised oh. two hundred sixty-five million dollars. Mm. If you read everything you read in the no, media, sorry, then I my think. Bad. Yeah. No. 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 But no, no. That's that's perfectly fine. And we've done some stock swap uh, with a few to acquire that. But broadly, no. But it's never been where we felt dependent. For the first five years, we didn't get the sense from people that they would understand the model that we were building. And so we funded it on our own. So to me, it's very important that you build things where you feel independent. Even in Swades, normally in philanthropy, other than the top 20 industrial foundations that are there were backed by by families. For us, it was important that we built a model where we would attract donors, but we are not incubating projects where we will do this, have a project for building, you know, 25,000 toilets and then go out to get funding. So donors will come because we're already doing what we want to do. And I think that's what I enjoy about the model. Even in movies, I'm not dependent on a pre-sale or whatever else. So that gives me a lot of satisfaction and a lot of comfort. Um, And I know we went all over the place, but to finish off on unfinished business, yeah, I think everyone should feel restless. Everyone should feel restless.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with you. I want to switch to UpGrad. How would you describe what UpGrad is? in a line or two, in a way that my 13-year-old son could understand it.
0: So we are focused on formal learning, skilling, and workforce development in India and around the world. That's pretty much how we define ourselves. We're not an edtech company, because I don't know what an edtech company is, and unfortunately, some of the K-12 guys have actually screwed up the reputation of the word edtech. Also. It's interesting, that You're not an edtech company. No, we're not an edtech company. You we're not a, a startup, of- and we're not an edtech company. Those are two things I can't. Why? Can I so mean, I will ask that. you to insist. That doesn't mean a- that we won't get labeled. <laughs> we keep getting labeled with that.
1: Why are you not a startup? You're what? Uh, eight years old as an organization?
0: So when Haldiram starts a, a factory, or X, or somebody starts a factory on sanitary napkins, and then goes out there and launches a product in three years, I don't think people call them a startup. And when Levers launches four new products, those are not startup products. So I think the startup word is a nice word, but to me, no. I think it's a mature business. We will there will be companies in st- always in starting up mode from that point of view. I don't think, and it's not like when you reach a certain value, you stop being a startup. So it, it's terminology at the end. So today. so what
1: is it for you? What differentiates? What's the stage where a startup process? are a mature company?
0: Some- we knew exactly. I think the maturity of the founder group is something that we're building to outlast many many others. So our jury, we don't want to be judged every six months and nine months and one year because the simple reason that there's no way you can build businesses on that process. And I've th- done that in media enough where I've got biffed on the head every quarter by. People saying, but this model, why are you? Where's your focus? Why are you in broadcasting and movies and animation and post-production? We said, okay, let's talk about it at the finishing line. You know, and there were 450 of us that stood in line at Doodash in 1993 when they opened up the tender for the second privatization of the channel. And I know everyone said, oh, but you exited. And I said, excuse me, I'm one of the last 15 people who stayed the course for the 20 years. And then when I had a liquidity event, doesn't mean that I am stepped separate the sector. So I'm very clear about those definitions. And I'm, why are you not the, an ed tech? Yeah. So what is an ed? I mean, ed tech is a it, it is a parlance invented by people who wanted to go out to raise money and VCs who liked the word tech because tech was the flavor for the last five years to invest in. So a terminology came about. Sure. FinTech, health tech, edtech, all of these are essentially sim- gross oversimplifications of... Very uh, oversimplifications as far as that is concerned. And then you get into an umbrella factor, right? So to us, we're in higher education, where outcomes impact, everything else makes a difference. And I think partly also, because as I said, the K-12 sector was so enchanting for the last four years for so many people, that every time we had a conversation with everyone, when you say you're an ed tech company, it was always being compared with K-12. And it took us some time to say, excuse me, that's a very nice sector, very good sector, bully for everybody who's in that sector with zero cost of capital, but we are here to build outcomes. Second, I think, a startup normally means you're building it and then there's a there's a funding round and then there's another funding round. And I think we haven't. For the first five years, we didn't go out to raise any money. So look, it's just a nomenclature. But then after that, you raised quite a significant amount of money. Of course. But that's how you would do with anything else. It's like Mahindra, when they want to get into electric vehicles, they'll raise a billion dollars. Hmm. Do you consider the EV part of Mahindra as a startup? No, because you just feel, okay, it's a $20 billion group. So I'm just saying it's a perception thing. It's a nomenclature. I'm not fussed. It. I'm not. I don't. I'm not. I don't. I'm not averse to it when people call it. But since you asked for a clarification, I wanted to give it. How old is the company? Uh, I think. I think we got in about seven or eight years. Yeah. Effective operating years, six years. incorporation years, eight years. And how many employees do you have today? We have about five thousand colleagues.
1: And what's your revenue?
0: No, I uh, revenue. But see, we're a That's private cool. list. Uh, private How limited fast company. are you growing? Every year we've grown at 100%. okay. And I think uh, in this sector, there's been a fair amount of schleppiness on the revenue sector. So that's why I just want to be very articulate and clear. Uh, When you look at your overall revenue, when you're growing at 100%, what people have a review is when the annual accounts come in November, and it's when you... On the MCA website. Sorry? That's right. Um, Yeah, And then, then you look at that context. The second part is obviously, when we started up, we were doing long courses. So... 100% 100% of our business was working professionals with affiliation with universities uh, and degrees and diplomas, facilitating them for universities. That now, in the last two years, is 20% of our business mix. And the remaining 80%? Is everything that we do, which is skilling and workforce development. You know, we've moved from zero on B2B. B, because I think when we went out the first time to even talk to a few investors and we stopped right there and said, and I told uh, Mank and Falgon and Ravi at that time, look, let's let's just stay very, very private, and we'll fund it. But there is no need to be bootstrapped. I think we're fortunate enough that we have any and all access capital. But I know having built a frugal media business, why it became so valuable, because the frugality started there. Let's just do what we want to do here, because nobody really understood higher ed, because everyone was going for K-12, because consultants, reports, venture capitalists, and all their wisdom feel, but look at the total addressable market. And I'm saying real value is going to be created not with total addressable market, guys. It's going to be created, firstly, by looking at quality of founders and how long-term they have the ability to stick. And second is people who can open and build a market. In higher education, how can you look at a total addressable market? Because I'm creating an environment where a working professional who does not have an option today to take a year off or two years off to do any kind of skilling or upgrading can now do it online. So where is that? There's no opening balance on that. So if you're backing companies like this, you're to back entrepreneurs that are going to open markets and build something over the next 10 years. And if you want a report card every six months or one year, and if you're going to sit on my board and ask me, so when's the next fundraise? We're not that company. So I think that's that defined us at that very early stage of necessarily what we wanted to do. And I think we've stayed the course on that. And I think we've attracted investors with that same mindset. I think Tomasic takes a 10-year view, IFC takes a 10-year view, even a family office that have come in here and our stock swaps today, they're all, no, so there's no conversation about when's your next fundraise at any board meeting. And that's what I love about it, because then we can talk about the business, we can talk about many other things. We're the first people to have independent directors. I think in India, everyone is very averse to having independent directors and boards. The only thing where you do it when it's statutory required. But mindset of founders come with a lot of passion but you need diversity on your board, right? Because what is diversity? Diversity, for most people, thinks so of how many women and how many men do you have on your board. For me, diversity is, are five people really challenging me? So I think the mindset, and I've sat with Lenskart and Piyush on that, you know, because I've been with him for the from the closest period of time, being an early investor, where I think there's the founder part that is on the board, and then there's the investor part. Good, solid inputs and advice, but with that mindset of... Uh, you know, rollover or a mark-to-market or a liquidity event. And then independent directors, and I don't mean independent directors only for governance. You know, you don't need a lawyer only and a charter accountant only. Those people give you insights and ask you questions because they have no agenda. And having no agenda people to really help you is great. And I think that's how we balance that. So if you see some of this thinking, that's why I feel we're not a startup. And I tell my 5,000 colleagues, don't behave like we're a startup. And at a town hall, don't ask me, so, you know, what's the value of my ESOP today? Either you have the faith that we're going to build something really valuable over the next five, 10 years. And I'm not pushing, I'm not kicking the bucket down the road and keep saying 10 years for the sake of it. But I'm saying report cards are not based on companies for within six months and one year or one quarter. I want to
1: go back to something that you talked about, which is the first five years of UpGrad, you did not raise any capital. Correct. And you also said that and 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 we've observed this as well that in the venture capital-led space, if you want early funding, angel funding, seed funding, venture capital funding, you need to have a template that the investors can understand. Ideally, something that's worked somewhere else in yeah. the past, yeah. so they can kind of and yeah. And and you're absolutely right that. In the absence of that, it becomes very hard for entrepreneurs to raise funding. And the reason why you were able to do that is, of course, you were able to deploy your own capital. Correct. But my question to you is that as a result of that, India as a country loses out on a lot of businesses and models, which could potentially be unique because people cannot understand what they're trying to create. And and how do you solve for that? How do we solve for that?
0: Um so I'm really glad you asked me that question because see I I come from a mode where one has built a business with zero capital and for 8 years in media we did the same thing at that time it's not that I had a bank balance I was zero bank balance it was a binary effect if I went if I didn't pay payroll I had no mom no dad necessarily to go back to and that was my last goodbye thing that they told me the go for it we're with you but if you need 50000 rupees loans I'm not the guy to come back to so when you build that base, you look at it kind of very differently. I think today, a combination of media, a combination of the conferences and the rhetoric that we have, a combination of the rhetoric of VC capital, we kind of gravitate towards that top echelon of entrepreneurs. I have I mean, to me, we have created about 40 casual entrepreneurs in our rural days today. Those are rocking guys. If you look at them and you put them on a show, He'll talk in Marathi to you, but he'll say it with the same intelligence that I'm talking right now, because he's very clear what he wants to do. And he wants to make a change in his village. And he wants to make a change in his entire block. And he wants to hire women for sorting his cashews. And when he has a conversation, he's about, I will make employment for 20 people, sir, but give me a one lakh rupee loan. And to me, there is a lot of that happening. And if you look at people in the impact sector today also and what they're looking for, So unless, you know, today SMEs in India is always looked at as one small scale industry relegated to an industrial uh, complex MIDC or XYZ in each of these places, whereas actually those are the rock stars. So there's a lot happening on that, is what I would say. I think India should take real luster and faith in the fact that there is a lot happening. We don't cover it. We don't evangelize it. They get their money maybe through structured loans and debt and bank. And they live a different life, and they're not attractive to venture capital, partly because, as you said, you need to pitch, you need to present, you need that narrative, you need that storytelling ability, and you need to have the ability to keep raising. Now, not every entrepreneur has a DNA that says, my, after I raise, 50% of my time is going to figure out what do I need to do for my next raise, you know? Because so
1: that's the nature of the venture capital return cycle. They operate, I mean, someone else I was speaking to said, uh, Naveen Tiwari of Inmobi, that our entire approach towards entrepreneurship is, derives from the seven-year um, view of a venture
0: <clears throat> capitalist that has to return money to LPs so one and therefore One is to be else. patient with seven years. One is to be patient and look at that. One is to keep doing a mark-to-market because at the third year, you have to go out. So 50% of a venture capitalist life is also to go out to raise his own funds. So he's in that balance where, hey guys, make me look good so that I can go out and raise the next billion. And this is a great, it's a, it's a perfect ecosystem because that ecosystem needs to exist. But I think we make it the only ecosystem. We make it the, then therefore entrepreneurs look at this as a chest thumping moment at every given stage. So to answer your question, it is unfortunate because we have made it a chest thumping moment, but we should not look at the fact that there are many people building businesses without necessarily the capability for that mantra or that rhetoric and whatever else that are building some solid businesses. As you go forward, they're out there and maybe, you know, can rural or can tier two or can X, Y, Z can actually go out and actually start building those stories. Yeah, yeah.
1: I want to take you back to something that you talked about your childhood. You said you came from a lower middle class background. Could you tell us about that? What was it and how did it influence your entry into entrepreneurship?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was a lower middle class. My dad was at that time, I think, working in, uh, in, in, a, in a battery company. And then a little later on with Tatas in some group, I think, I don't even remember where. And we used to stay in a in, a, in a one, I would say, a three-bedroom place with um, almost my aunts and everybody else. It was, a, it was at Grant Road. And really incredibly fond memories. Both my mom and my both aunts, which was a joint family, they all teached piano. So we used to have, uh, all my early girlfriends were all people who came to learn the piano. So very, very fond memories. And it gives you a very grounded effect. It just grounds you in a completely different way. It it kind of gives you, you know, then your surprise and shocks in life are not that much. You can handle setbacks in a different way. You can always look frugal on everything that you do. Yes, you can have, you know, it's not like I wouldn't go out and take large risks, but I I can look at the down and the up in a very different way. So, and why I think did that- schooling at that stage? Sorry, I, was, I was, I was, I was in a school called Duns Institute before. Only in the eighth standard, I moved to Cathedral, which is an aspirational school in South Mumbai. And that Duns Institute to me was incredible. Today, I still sponsor about ten kids every year in scholarships from that from Duns Institute because I remember, you know, half the people didn't even speak English at that stage, and I didn't, didn't speak much of Hindi at that stage. So it was a good. It was a good. Uh, yeah, it was just an excellent leveling background and only fond memories then
1: how did this i mean at that in that era chances should have been that you know when you're growing up the the default um the the mode was get a good education and then get a good job yep. which is stable yep and yet you said that early on for some reason you told your dad and parents that i don't want to work for someone like
0: what what where did yeah, that come no, from i mean it was it was scary i think some part of it is karma and destiny i believe in that some part a lot is serendipity i believe in that too so i i don't have an explanation why at the age of 18 19 20 but you know at that time i used to do theater i used to do front of camera hosting for in the single channel there so when you start earning 500 rupees on weekends between doing three theater plays with a palamsi, or um, doing Young World and Magic Lamp, cumulatively, you earn 500 rupees. That to me is like salary at that point. And this was all hobby. This is what I was loved doing. So that DNA, I think from that day onwards, that, hey, you can make money and really enjoy your work, crept into me enough that says I should be doing things on my own. Hmm,
1: so this is that adage where they say that find something that you love, so it doesn't feel like work. So your accidental entry into my doing things... My serendipitous
0: entry, I would say, more mm. than accidental, mm. I think, yeah, is is pretty much that. Yeah, I mean, as I said, when I wanted to start up, I don't think my second answer was I want to build something in media or entertainment because firstly, those words were not even coined at that stage. But I knew that I wanted to do something on my own and therefore cable TV just happened Is my very, very first idea and enterprise because I, I moved into a building in Parade, and... Just in terms of choice, one felt one should be able to start a second channel. And at that stage, for the first one year, we had an incredibly rough time. I mean, we didn't make a single sale. Now, imagine if I was in the cut to 2022 and doing something like that. You know, angel investors wouldn't come in. I'd be dependent on something. But when you are at that stage, when you don't have any bank balance, you look at business in a very different, you look at it in a very existential sense. And today, I look at anything that I'm doing constantly on the basis of existential, which means that balance of, I have to make sure, that's why I'm obsessed with the build for five years and 10 years, and make sure that once you're in it, you're in it. I mean, to me right now in Swades, we've now taken the faith of the community. One of the biggest things when you're working in the not-for-profit is to build trust. And you can't build trust by making sweeping statements and by, so you can't be, you have to build trust because most of these people in rural India, enough people have come into their villages and told them, I'll put a tap tomorrow in your home and then gone away and come back four years later and said, I'll put a tap in your home. So when you're building that kind of trust, I think my early days gave me that grounding that says, I need to be there. I need to build something frugally where even if all else fails, I'm still there to get it going. So I don't have that context today. When somebody asks me, even in the enterprise that we're doing an Upgrad today, you know, when's your X round or what's your runaway? And I'm saying, oh, I don't have any runway. What's your runaway? Because, you know, I don't have a concept of a runaway. I don't look at businesses from the point of view of runaway.
1: Before we move on from this point, I just want to go back to that point that you said about as an 18, 19 year old, you got into things that you enjoyed, you made some money and As you rightly said, serendipitously, it changed your career arc. Do we need more of that in India? Because I think what's also happened is we've always, as a country, had this concept of, especially as Indian parents, pushing our kids to study, get an undergraduate degree, then get a postgraduate degree, and then decide what you want to do. So what essentially happens is we push them down this path of education and formality and... You know and and by the time they're 23 24 and, and this just happens either they've spent a lot of money or they've taken loans they've got mbas they become much more risk-averse and yep. therefore that decides the career paths they take I mean yep. um I have a 13 year old son do you have children I have a 35 year old daughter so she's gone through yep. that phase as well what would be your advice to parents and to Indians around that 17 that vital mark of 17 to 20, where at least in the West, in America, etc., they
0: do encourage yep. people to go
1: out and do things but and they, earn but money. But in
0: America, they also encourage you to fail. And I think that's an important that coefficient in, in this part. So to answer your question, yes, do we need more of it? Absolutely. Uh, is it a personal choice? See, I think the next we're not going to be able to have jobs for the next 200 million people that's coming out of our formal or informal education system. And if you want to really be the top three economies in the world... The question of entrepreneurship has to come in. And when I started it, it was a it was a low esteem uh, business. Oh, you didn't get a job, so you started something on your own. Today, I think, and you know, our prime minister has evangelized startup in a very nice manner, where it's brought a conversation into the dining table. And I think sometimes those one movements help. Third, as I said. If you look at outside of these top three cities and what we all talk about and what we all read about, there is a lot of that happening. If you, if I, we're on a university here um, in BKC. And when I when I got four of the best brains to sit down and say, we want to sit down here and discuss the careers of tomorrow. And the kids, there were about 150 in the room. And they said, wait a minute, can we tell you what are the careers of tomorrow? Because we don't really care what McKinsey and e and think about the careers of tomorrow. We're going to tell you, because frankly, the careers of tomorrow is what we consume, what we want, and what do we want to work on. And that was a penny-dropping moment for me, and this just happened about four months back. So I think the world has changed. People are out there. There is a lot of that disruption happening. And I think some of us, I'm not saying we live in cocoons in, in the way in which we kind of eat, breathe, consume, and the circle that we be in. But there is a lot of that happening. Does it need to be for India? Absolutely. For our employment, we do need an ecosystem. And when everyone says, you know, there are two thousand two hundred entrepreneurs this year, I'm saying we need a million. We need a million of them, and they're at different startups. Not all of them need to be this coveted word, which unfortunately is a coveted is usually, word of unicorn. And exactly, else. and and it usually represents VC
1: funded startups yes, and not yes, necessarily yeah. I mean, just entrepreneurs.
0: Guys, I mean, stop getting patting yourself on the back on a unique of being a unicorn. Stop patting yourself on the back. Because your real proof is going to come three years, four years down the line. Just because three investors decided that they wanted to get in there and therefore value it, whatever, because they don't look at valuation in that part and whatever else. That doesn't mean it's to your credit. Upgrad
1: is a unicorn. Upgrad was valued,
0: per my research, over about what $2.2 billion. Yes. So by definition of that, yes. Is it an aspirational thing that we set out to do? No. But by definition, we fall under that category. Yes.
1: What is it that you feel you add most value to Upgrad? as?
0: I think my early days um, of that, what I would call frugal approach to things, that very long-term view of doing things, having run a public listed company, so knowing what the ups and downs of quarterly are, having re- built a business with no capital for 7, 8, 10 years, then having a Warburg Pincus to a News Corp and then a Disney and global partners at a very different value. I think that understanding of stable, long-term businesses is one. Second, I think you can't succeed in media unless you are constantly obsessed with looking at trends. You need to be three steps ahead of everybody else. And so I think I bring the fact of very disruptive thinking to build trends. Third, research. And research is not this formal focus group research. you're, you're curious enough to know what the consumer and the learner is going to be thinking 365 days. And I learned that in media, that if I don't understand that, and if I'm creating a TV show or a kid's channel or a youth channel or a movie like Rang De Basanti, I'm going against the wind every single time. And my jury is going to be out when I launch a channel or on a Friday night. So when you get to that level, you respect. And I think I do. I do, I do webinars on weekends, for example. Or whatever, just... Talking to people, to me, gives a very good good sense of that. So the ability to respect feedback, research across the board is the third. Mm-hmm. Fourth, I think, is my absolute obsession for scale. One of the things I didn't want to do in my early days was uh, work for somebody else and wanted to implement my own vision. But I don't know why, again, serendipitously I was obsessed with scale. If I wasn't obsessed with scale, I would have built an average media company because as I said, there are a lot of there are about twenty five listed companies today. None of them are in a market cap past 300, 400 crores, and we exited at a very different value. So to me, the integrated approach and the obsession that one wanted to be of a certain scale and therefore a conglomerate, I, I think, is very clear. And where undefeated. does that come from? The, I have to say, I don't know. It's just that obsession for is scale it impact? was because you kept talking about impact. Yeah, and I think wrong. it is. I think in Swades also, you know, when 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 I when I sat down after we had exited. Uh, the company to Disney, and when I was talking to my wife, my first statement was, "Let's lift a million people out of poverty, and then let's keep building that as a model." So I have always looked at things because I think partly because when in India, if you now everything is a drop in the ocean anyway in whatever you do in life, but here you need whatever you need to do, you need to do at scale. So I think the scale part would be the the other part there. And at the end of the day, I see a lot of link learning is soft skills. Learning is storytelling. So I think I spent the better part of my first 15, 20 years on storytelling in a very different way to impact different people. And I think for the next 15 years and 20 years, in this learning skilling, I think soft skills and storytelling, because even in college, what you remember is you're one or two professors that taught in a particular manner. The three case studies that the penny dropped for you to do that. And that's what learning is about. So if I take these parts here, and then we've got a fabulous team around us. I think it's a the yin and the yang come together in a very different way. What does, how many hours do you work in a typical day? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's, the clock is not something I really look at from that point of view. I mean, I am on. I mean, I think I spend a lot of alone time in the morning from 6.30 to 8.39. Either it's on a long walk or it's with yoga or a little bit of meditation. But it's on. It's not off time. It's on time. It's a clarity of thought process in time. It's getting your mind going on a particular point in time. So I think, to me, the work. And then, part... when do you switch off? But and if I'm if I'm if I'm reading a script, I'm switching off. If I... No, no. I meant like at the end of the day. At what time do you switch off? Yeah, I think maybe 10, 30, 11. It's a good period in time. But I just want so to. You're still talking about twelve fourteen. Yeah, I'm definitely days. talking about a twelve to fourteen hour on day. I wouldn't call it a work day, but an on day, yes. And and the reason I'm saying on is because th- different people have a different be- definition of the word work. And the minute you get to work, then you have to figure out work-life balance. But I'm saying if you look at it on, it's part of life. And what are your weekends like? Um, are they also on? I th- yeah, I think, well, I pick. I mean, it could be a Sunday, but I don't think I gravitate towards a Sunday in any particular manner. I think in media, we never had Sundays. So since you never had Sundays, you, you looked at a day. Now that day can come at the end of seven days, but since God ordained on must, the seventh day, you someone will rest. From
1: media, I must say that that's, that's a reputation that's
0: stuck to media companies that there are no weekends Yes, and you're always no, working. No, I think it's because the schedules are a little different. You get on a project and then you're on a project for a month or two and then you take two months off. So I think it's wrong to say that, yes, there isn't a seventh day of rest. And you, but you do take breaks in a very different format, but it's a little bit more non linear So to me, a Sunday is nice because other people also take it off. But my wife is as involved with her philosophy and in the not-for-profit. And sometimes we're in villages on Saturday and Sunday. Is that work? No. It's a massive recharge of my battery as far as I'm concerned. Or if I'm at a shoot or reading three scripts, I, I don't think I'm on. I'm on or I'm not on, depending on how I look at it. So it does look like
1: you're always looking for something to engage your brain all the time, and you're not particularly looking for downtime because even in the downtime, you're using it. You're switching to maybe a script or something to do with swades, etc., and stuff like that. Is that a fair
0: assumption? Yes, depends on how you define downtime. Okay, if I'm getting into a pool and I want to do ten lens, mm. is that downtime? Of course, it is downtime. And reading, but at the same does time, does your but brain you're also switch focused, off right? while but, you're swimming? So I think no. I, but your fo- your focus is moved. I, I loved being squashed in my early days. Now I can't because of my knees. Uh, but at that time when I used to, it was because you. The it's such a fast paced game that you just you cannot can't. at that time think, oh, wait a minute, I need to write these two memos here because after I go back from my game, I can do this and that. So I think when you move from one and completely absorb and be of that moment in the second one, I think that's part of yeah, what Because swimming do. does allow you, yeah. especially the immersion, yeah. Yeah. puts your brain into like completely, a different time and space. Completely, completely. And I love it because the, you know, just where I live, the next door pool is open to 11 p.m. And I can tell you that, you know, so it's, it's how you look at your day. So I don't look at that in a work context.
1: You've been in spaces, and you are in spaces where the the most important resource is talent.
0: Yeah.
1: How do you find talented people? Do you have any hacks? Do you have methods?
0: How no, do you f- I don't. I don't think. I, I, at least I've not found any hacks, so to speak. I, I think shortcuts normally actually become long cuts in life most of the time. Sometimes they do, but most of the time, shortcuts in life become long cuts. Um, no, I think. I think when you're building people, it takes a little bit of time, right? I mean, I think I was very clear um, when I started Upgrad that at that state or the thought of Upgrad, not when I started Upgrad, but the thought of getting into this sector was, there are a couple of things that I think now in my second innings I don't want to do, and therefore it's very important to have co-founders. Mm-hmm. Would I have just started uh, uh, you know, an education or a learning and a skilling company on my own? Chances are zero, because I did want an ecosystem where that you can find the right mix and match. And it took me about, I was, for a year, I was just meeting entrepreneurs and people in so-and-so sector. I met Mang twice uh, briefly, only to pick his brain because he was working with Bertelsmann. He had been with other people in education. And then Serendipity again brought us together uh, to start working together. So to me, I think that element of building in and having that co-founder ecosystem was important for me. When you meet or interview people, do you have any...
1: Favorite open-ended questions that you ask them that reveal their thinking to you?
0: I think if I'm really looking for someone as a colleague that's going to work with me closely, then approach attitude and problems. Um I would say problem finding rather than even problem solving. I Give think us an everyone example is overrated on problem solving. But sorry? What question would you ask? Well, I think firstly I would take a long series of three or four meetings. and That could be on a walk, it could be over a meal, it could be, you know, just let's do something else completely different, but I put them in different habitats. So I think it will be more about observation than a particular punch question that I have, to be honest, on, on that. Because to me, I don't have a scripted one. I think it, like we're having this conversation and doing a great job about one question leads to another answer that leads to another question. That's, I think, works that way. And if the flow is normal, I feel comfortable. If the flow is stopped, and I don't have something that's quizzing me in my mind about what the other person said, that would bri- I'm not saying would raise a red flag with me, but it would allow me to think, you know, why is this not flowing? At Upgrad,
1: along with your co-founders, what's your role and what does your
0: operational style look like? So as Executive chairman, I think it's, a, you, you asked me a little earlier about my strengths and what I bring to the table, and I think that's pretty much what it is, to just, uh, I, I I input where I think there's long-term thinking and strategy. I do sometimes get into the micro and the macro, because I think that's very critical and important. Mm-hmm. My job is to see that the organization is going to be constantly young and nimble for the next 10 years, mm-hmm. that none of our decision-making process, of course, there'll always be a short-term in, impact. but. What does that mean for us for what we want to do and keep that path going? And today, if you really want to grow, nonlinear growth is as important as linear growth in many cases. Now, when you build that kind of an ecosystem, and I've been someone who, I've acquired companies in the past, but I've also been acquired. And I know exactly the DNA that goes with that. And I think the success I had in media is more than being an entrepreneur. I was a great catalyst. When you're dealing with people in the creative business, you need to have strong ideas, but if you thrust down your idea, then you're a sole proprietor and you won't be able to build a business of scale. And I think the different, differentiator for me to build something at scale in media, which is otherwise a very personalized business, and you feel, this is my creative vision, I want implementers, taught me a lot that to be a great catalyst is to back other people. Because at the end of the day, you're backing other people people, executives, which, and they need to feel like owners. So I spent a lot of time to build ownership at different levels within the company. I mean, yesterday, I think I spent four and a half hours with team members in Hyderabad and Bangalore, just talking to groups of 20 people at various stages. And I enjoyed that because it gives you a... Now, that's, is that my job? Not at all. Did HR structure it? Not at all. Was it a tick moment? But... I know exactly that if I feel that, it'll give me a good dimension of how, at a time like this, when people are so insecure, when there's so many of X, Y, Z, to me, it was just, and if somebody asked me, hey, do you think, uh, you know, in Upgrad, we're, 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 we're not going to fire people? And I said, don't ask that question to anyone, because if anyone's giving you an answer that says, this is it, I'm done, no more firing, they're fooling themselves. They can't look you in the eye. And I think that can happen with a Google and a Facebook, and it's going to happen for any company. So when you give such trace-face answers, you build a certain level of transparency within your organization that builds a little level of culture. But my role, I think, is would be strategy, uh, exactly where we want to go. This integrated model and at scale is something I'm quite obsessed about. Upgrad and many other companies,
1: Google, Microsoft, various other companies, have gone through letting go of some employees. I see that as one of the cycles of business but like you said there's a lot of angst when companies do layoffs in general are like you know again coming as a journalist we we glorify when companies hire there are times when x company to hire so many people and then we vilify when companies let go of people whereas both are just essentially two sides of the same coin what will it take for us to see that
0: I'm not justifying. by are you hiring? Are I'm in, not justifying. Are you, confes- are you in confession mode on a uh, Sunday I'm, and saying uh, that we glorify and then we also no. put them down? Yes,
1: we do. And and I'm essentially not glorifying either. Yeah. I'm, I do feel that the glorification of Hiring numbers is very wrong. because
0: it's the tide of the time at that particular. Exactly, stage I remember
1: life. when, like, you know, the IT services boom was going, and every second day you would open the newspaper and would be like, Infosys to hire so many people, SAP to set up office and hire so many people, right? Sure. It keeps happening, and you know, and and when there is a down cycle, yep. we see yep. this company to lay off, yep. that company to yep. lay off. Both represent a very surface level idea of why companies exist. What can we do to essentially get more people involved and understanding and appreciative of what's really going on? That if there are great times when salaries grow up,
0: hundred percent, two hundred percent, they'll be powerful, bad. Down. Powerful things. tool is over communication, and I think it's very underrated. People think that sometimes I want to, I when there's bad news, I might as well go first under the carpet. Second, I don't think everyone will absorb all the bad news, so let me give it in drips and drabs. And these two are the worst things that you want You want to give bad news, give it all together and give it out there. And second, you cannot creep into anything. You've got to make eye contact because at the end of the day, what you're telling them is, to the best of my knowledge, right here, right now, this is what I want to do. Because the only other room I don't want to be in is I'm bankrupt and all of y'all are going out. OK, so since, trust me as a leader to figure out that at this point in time, this is, I think, the best part of it. I think we all get very embroiled That I don't think I can handle all bad news. I don't think anybody else can handle bad news. We disrespect the maturity with which any person at any level in any organization is, is absorbent to that because shock and awe will offer bad news, but be sometimes for 24 hours, if somebody's having a bad time in their life and is a single bread earner, it can be for a longer period of time. But today, overstaffing actually means the company is anywhere up going to hit a hard rock and badly. Second is, you're not going to grow as individuals because obviously there is is a lot of less work for a lot more people. And therefore, demoralization will happen. The the cancer will have already set in. So you've got to take your bold steps and go forward on that. Right now, I think the point that people have done it is they've done it for... See, there are two aspects. So all of this is fine in an ecosystem. And I think when you look at a Google and whatever else, they're doing it for different reasons. Some of the reasons here that may be happening is you've sat with investors who wanted to pump you with money. Then they wanted to again pump you with money. Then they wanted to again pump you with money. Then they're sitting on your board and saying, let's go for this and for that. I'm you saying even if, you are, a, even if, if you're a fac- if One of my colleagues the
1: foregroundization of startups. with force yeah. feed
0: um, Abs- capital to yeah. startups. Yeah, And when you do that and you give a month, to, I mean, I'm a 10-year-old entrepreneur. I mean, even if I'm a 5-year-old entrepreneur and I'm 35, But of course I'm mature. But when I'm every day being told, man, fantastic, go for it, I'm going to start believing that. Right? So when you look at that environment and then you suddenly flip the coin on the other way, that context is different. In and terms that happens very suddenly.
1: The same investors will say... you. This is the worst we've ever seen. You got to cut costs right now. there is yes. no more capital coming. right. So yes. it's very abrupt, like you said. and yes. for many entrepreneurs, they don't have time
0: to even process that information yes. before. And I would say to that today, if you're asking me like in 2023 and going forward, one of the biggest risks and challenges for real strong leadership is the fragility with which businesses are around the world and the acuteness with which things go up and go down. And I think leaders have to be very, very thick-skinned on the fragility. And whatever I say... Are you a fan
1: of Nassim Taleb Um, and his concept of anti-fragility and
0: like... I haven't read that. I have to say it. But I'm just saying it... All I'm saying is today, if you look at... I mean, just what happened in the last two weeks, right? I mean, you've got one of the two big banks, one in Silicon Valley and one in Switzerland. But it, it didn't happen in 24... It didn't happen over four months. It wasn't a state where, you know, it was unraveling. So the suddenness and the fragility of situations is so acute. And therefore, 95% of us anyway get into for herd mentality. And when the herd mentality, and you know, you go to Africa in, in, in August and you see uh, you know, the, the migration, it's what is it? A migration. You're following the person in front of you and you're watching the bum of the person in front of you, and you're just gonna follow them madly. So when herd mentality changes, it's gonna change overnight. So I think for entrepreneurs, more than this, it is going to be more and more sudden. It's going to be more and more fragile. It's going to be more and more extreme, both the up and the down. And people will have to just learn to live with that and deal with that and be proactive about that. And leadership is going to be tested more on those. Today, it is 10 times more important about that one thing that you got wrong versus the 19 things you got right. Unfortunately... That's why you will need to be restless. Restless in Mumbai, restless. In Bangalore, restless. In Seattle, you'll need to be restless because you don't have a choice. Before I move on from the concept of letting employees go, so what
1: is your, like, you know, if someone were to ask you, companies are wrong to let employees go because they made a mistake by over-hiring or staffing. You said over-communication is one of the things that you believe in. What is it that you look into? People's eyes. What is it that you would recommend other entrepreneurs do when they're
0: faced? You with need the lot. You need to explain to them why they need to go away because they have to talk to a sister, a parent, a spouse, maybe a kid, and give them some reasoning. They need to get that emotional closure of a situation, and therefore they need to understand why it's not relevant for them. They don't give an F at that particular point in time what your problem is, but. You still need to communicate it because of the simple reason, you know, it's like, you know, a president going and doing a condolence visit after a, a drone attack. Yeah, I mean, you've done it, man. You've commanded a, a situation, and innocent victims died, but you still need that job to be able to communicate whatever. So you got to feel like a war zone when it comes to that, and be absolutely straight. I think we duck the issue. You need to explain to them why this happened. When you start, when you start accepting responsibility. You come to the person's level, right? Because otherwise you think you're talking down to people. You know, this is what happened. I thought this, I thought this, I thought this, and this is the best thing. So you're already on that pulpit. Nobody wants to identify with somebody who's on a pulpit. So talk, explain to people, this is what it was. This was a fragility. Hey, guys, but we all were there. You know, I've had 25 of my colleagues sitting in meetings. We made this plan. For better or for worse, now this plan is not working out. And therefore, this is what we need to do. People will start understanding that. At dawn, that day, they still want to throw a cake at you. But over a period of life, they will. I mean, my best things in media, my legacy is not the lovely movies or the channels and whatever else. It's when I meet colleagues on the road in media, at least 40% of, of them, I think in some form or the other, are some part that have gone into doing something in media, whether it's in news or whether it's been in fiction or whatever else. But when they meet you and say, listen, Hi, I used to work here. Those three years were the toughest years of my life. And I hated the fact that you were doing this and doing that. But today, if you ask me, those were the most memorable years of my life. And I learned the most. To me, that's the ultimate HR comment for me. Um, Just
1: sticking with something that you said. I mean, you're working 12, 14-hour days. Um, You're you're a very hands-on founder. Um, you, You said you were in Hyderabad yesterday. Yet, you're in your late 60s. I'm in my late 40s. There is also this, and we've written about this in the Ken, this creeping concept of ageism, especially in tech, yeah. where founders, employees, if you're working <laughs> in startups or fast-paced innovative businesses, you're expected to be, you know, by the time if you're hitting your 40s, it means either you better be a founder or else it's going to be really hard for you. Do you see that as well? And like, you know, is there something.
0: I think you should ask my colleagues that.
2: Uh, No, I mean, I'm certainly not saying
0: you don't seem. (laughs) They find it difficult to keep the pace. And I think uh, if you're energizing and if you're the positive energy and if you're energizing and if you're walking shoulder to shoulder, then nobody asks you, how old are you?
1: That is one of the biggest things that a founder or a CEO can bring. Energy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Positive energy. Sometimes, yeah, you can be a negative energy, but most of the time, that's your job. Your job is to, is, you know, you can you can be extremely negative about a situation, but you'll have to go around the block and come back and then put the hand on the shoulder and explain to that person if you want that. You need to emanate positive energy. That is your job as a leader to do that. And that does not mean that you need to always be motivating and always be haha ha and always be in a great sense of humor. Humor helps. Humor helps big time. Cracking a joke in the middle of the most stressful situation there has created miracles in acceptance of people, because it just makes you feel very human. But yes, I think energizing and and motivating people, people think of it as only positive stroking. I'm saying being very candid, very blunt, very sharp, and then saying, this is what I necessarily feel. I can't think of a better person. But whatever it is now, I'm right behind you. Outside, we'll be together. Inside, I'm going to take you apart. That gives you a different josh, that says, absolutely fine, I'm going to learn the most but outside, this person is going to back me all the hilt. That's very, that's an energizing concept in life.
1: Which makes me curious, what is UpGrad's culture that allows something like this to exist? Because this is very hard, where people can be blunt with each other, at the same time, trust each other, work together with each other. So how would you describe UpGrad's culture? I and think what's culture your and organization
0: goal? is permanent work in progress. I'm, I, and, and, and it is work in progress. So am I ever happy that this is our defined culture? No. And the reason I was in Hyderabad and Bangalore, outside of other things, to talk to these people was to drip, drip, drip on culture. It's not something that you can what put What is that a, if I were to ask you to define, try and define what the I think we're culture. completely a non hierarchical organization. I think we, I push for diversity of thinking. You know, I hate it when somebody says, look, I have this, I used to bring people from your previous employment is taboo. Not for any other reason, but the message is, it brings mean, you don't don't want people to finish your sentence for you. I mean, there's 7 billion people on the planet. Now, you can't think that these two people that you work with, and then the comfort zone sets in, the hierarchy is already set in because you've come in with that old hierarchy of what you want to necessarily do. And you're not going to grow, and the company is not going to learn. I'm not worried about when you go. All four of you all go together. That's not the material part. In that job, you're not going to learn, and you're not going to grow. When I started back with uh, media right now with RSVP, the first thing all my people came. To say, Are you're not asking me to come back and work with you? I said I think we had a fantastic relationship. I just want to work with a completely new team of people we'll always be in touch and let's keep talking but no how am I going to have fun you, again it'll be the same hierarchy we'll still figure out the same situation you'll say remember that time we did this we did this, we did this. I don't want to know and that and that
1: same pattern will come
0: in again yeah absolutely absolutely and I think biggest challenge with founders today is and with most people is you normally and I, I've i had conversations where somebody from HR said that's a good candidate why don't you hire them I don't think they'll fit into our culture I'm saying but why do they need to fit into our culture our culture in any, I'm not saying it's not defined, but why do they? Let's get people that can actually, yeah, I mean, if there's an ethical issue or if there's an other issue, that's fine. But if it's to do with this person talks in a particular manner, yeah, I mean, what do you think my consumer is today? What do you think my learner is? They're from all over the place. Sometimes I have to speak to them in a different language. Sometimes I have to speak to them in a different language, different tonality. Look at our cross-section of customers. We need people with a cross-section of people.
1: I just want to make a, a, a very quick observation about something which you said, which is, I don't want people to complete my sentences for me. There's 7 billion people in the world. And that in many ways is the concept behind, let's say, Chat GPT and the large language models and this entire thrust of AI will reimagine the world. And I think my personal discomfort with that has been the same thing. It is essentially a very large and very powerful sentence completion system which has been trained on stuff which has already happened so it is not creating anything new yeah and human creativity essentially comes from when you're trying to do something which is different yeah right so i just thought when well, you said, I, know I don't a lot want of people... To- I
0: know a lot of people said, oh, ChatGPT is going to write scripts. They say, well, I'm not going to make that movie. <laughs> because it's going to line. look yeah. like something yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah, because frankly, nine other people in nine rooms will be getting a similar concept and idea as far as that is concerned. And I know you're saying, my kid now doesn't need to learn this because they can complete an essay here. But my God, it'll be templated. So, you know... But I there's, think there's yeah, a, there is a certain they-
1: veneer of sophistication that it holds to a large set of people.
0: Of course. Um, And, you know, I mean, crypto did. AR, VR. I mean, look at the narratives that have been around in the world. And all of them are good words. The main point is suddenly we all descend on it like it's God's gift to mankind. Mm. And then we get let down. I think half the problem with your disappointments is only about the expectations you set.
2: A few weeks ago, Cost to Company, the Ken's weekly podcast about work in workplaces, received a striking message from a Ken subscriber called Uzma Rashti. Uzma wrote and I quote, "Mumbai is suffering from a lack of new talent inflow. Unless there are dramatic changes, it will be Calcutta in 20 years." sad face emoji. This became our hypothesis for an episode of Cost to Company. Is Mumbai dying? Is it going to become Calcutta in the next 20 years? Is it going to be a city that the most talented professionals leave for better opportunities? I'm your host Sneha and you can find this episode of Cost to Company linked in the show notes. And if you, like Uzma, have a story to tell about our work and workplaces, a story that begs being said out loud that no one else seems to have noticed, a story of how our businesses and careers are adapting to the world in flux around us, fill in the survey also linked in the show notes. It won't take more than two minutes. Help us make Cost to Company a podcast about you and for you.
1: Do you do you look at yourself as an iconoclast? I'm sorry, A con- contrarian?
0: Uh I don't look at myself but I can definitely see that 99 or 100 people will view me as that. Yes. Do what? I see myself? No. What are you paranoid about? Um Yeah, I I I think my restlessness is there but I would not say I'm paranoid about anything else to be honest. Because paranoid means it's a it's a constant humming fear what like, worries you sorry
1: what worries you i mean when you switch off when you're swimming when you're thinking about like you know is there something but it it that would be a
0: little transactional that worry so it's it'd, not be like like deep, yeah, it'd be like something on a day-to-day transactional. i think worry on a transaction basis like hey we had this full review for one of our blocks in reigard and we talked about these four things but even after this and even after this and even after this rigor, do we, do we do I really think in two years' time these people will move from 1 lakh income household to 2 lakh income household? That's a worry. Yes. Do you want to take a break? No, I'm good. Are you want uh, to take we can a break? Just take like a quick yeah, two-minute yeah, yeah. sure, break, sure, sure. have a glass of water. Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Are we going okay? Yeah.
1: Earlier in your conversation, you talked about the importance of failing on and accepting failures in order for us to innovate or take risks. If you look back at UpGrad, what would you say are some of the top failures that you made that perhaps maybe steps that you didn't take,
0: maybe things that you do, did but didn't go well, and, and what did they teach you? So... Look, whether it's upgrade or anything else, I would break that up with a little bit more. What because you asked the question and it's a little nuanced. Firstly, failure is at that moment you redefine it, and if in three months that failure is not as a setback, then you got a problem because then it's a, like a bit of a full stop. It's a little bit more extreme. Second, I think I'm not a person who believes uh, about in hindsight because I think it's a complete waste of time. That what it. Because there's no such thing as in hindsight, if I could have done this, because I've learned very bitterly in life also that just because three years later, you feel if only that I could have done there, that during those three years, there are 10,000 more circumstances that would have happened. You know, I can sit here and say in 1991, instead of Subhash Chandra bidding for, uh, from Lika Singh to get broadcasting, I should have necessarily, if I would bid it, I would have been something different. But I may not have had the resources to raise money, and I could have been bankrupt and uh, seeking solace in the Andamans or in the UK right now in that context. I, I started home shopping many, many years back, tele-shopping network. And for the first five years, it really did well. And then we had a few setbacks. But for whatever it is worth, it was early for that stage because credit card penetration was not there. I can sit here and say, if I just hung on to this, I'd be 10x of Flipkart and Amazon today in India, which we would have because we were really at that scale. But in that process, I could have been bankrupt. So I look at views where if I had to reverse the clock is a a nice narrative, but it's not something that's very practical in life. And I would urge people to look at, in hindsight, in a very different manner. I look at it with a different lens. Um, So missed opportunities are, I also believe that there's a small sliver between when you're a pioneer and when you're before your time. And before your time is a very costly exercise. And pioneer is mostly much later. Is
1: it even possible to draw that line without the benefit of hindsight? Because it would look the very same, right? A pioneer, and and to go back to something that you said earlier about building markets where they don't exist. A pioneer and someone who's ahead of their time are virtually the same
0: person. It would be. And I think that the slight difference is your ability to take a hard call when you think it's before it's time or your absolute ability to stick it out for the very long term and recalibrate what you thought you wanted to be like i could have in home shopping recalibrated to a very different operation which didn't have growth and say for the next five years till people change their consumer habits and deliveries could be happen outside of payment collections i would do that so it is a sliver this is the pop version
1: of what most of us today call pivot pivot to something else uh, the or have more. a have
0: a holding pattern, Got it. have a little bit of a holding pattern. So if I think, I mean, cable TV for me at the end of that first year was, it could have been before its time, but I stuck with it and then it became the beginning of multi-channel viewing in India from that point of view. So it's a, it's a fine line for, for, for that, but conviction helps a lot. Staying the course to me is an important virtue. And I know you said, everyone said, I want to make some money and then I want to, I, then I want a mentor. I want money to work for me. You can't time that. And success is only going to happen by the formula. So to me, failure is about the fact that you have to stick it out. Because failure is not, I mean, I can't sit here and list out what are the missed opportunities that we did in skilling or what that I did in media before. I look at failure where, it, if anything, that I can laugh at three months later and narrate to people saying, remember, that was such a horrible day we had. There was We almost felt this. We were kind of falling off the cliff and we can laugh about it. Then you know you moved on from it. Otherwise it can be cathartic. Staying the course is very important. But
1: over the last, I would say, decade, we've gotten used to this constant narrative of businesses being some being something which only grow. And if you stop growing, and if you're not growing exponentially, then you must be perhaps failing. And and you know we know for a fact that, like, you know. Sometimes, if you're especially building long term businesses, business which last 20 years, 30 years, there will be numerous years where you're not only not growing, but perhaps contracting. Because that's part and parcel of staying the course. But that's really hard. No, it's expect, not hard. It's, it's a fallacy to believe
0: that. It is this. Is it not hard, like to retain employees because no, you know, even the employees even are. Like how do you motivate context. people
1: it's, during that time?
0: Yeah. in my twenty years, I've grown from seventy-six kilos to eighty-seven kilos to ninety-seven <laughs> kilos to this thing. I don't look at my situation where this has been good or bad. So, if you look at your life in that thought process, there will be a slowdown period on anything else. And I think it's excellent for an organization to do that. And I think you'll have too many fair weather friends or employees you're working with if everyone is only on steroids. And I think it's mythical that everyone feels, oh, I'm not in a growth company and therefore. Sometimes recalibrating, starting there, digesting are actually what even employees would like. Not because you want some time off. That could be the most grueling time. Not growing, but reconsolidating and churning or doing whatever could be in fact more stressful than some of the years in which you're actually growing from that point of view. But I think it's absolutely mythical that growth is an element and that's gonna what's going to define you a little bit. It's a little bit like I haven't raised funding in the last 18 months. What does that make me? Exactly. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same it's hysterical. space that
1: this company has not raised funding. It's hysterical. This company's revenue has not grown. Ergo, this company must not be doing well.
0: But whereas, like yes, you say, yes, it's a yes. holding pattern. But beauty is I have the beholder. So if I'm a listed company hmm. and I'm I'm accountable for that. In a cycle, you will do that. Some people, but then you need to pace your growth. The reason why HDFC has been such a stable stock and it's like an annuity it business grows for many a people, predictable rate like, every yeah, year. Yeah, and not in a bad way. But you know exactly what you're getting into there, and therefore they've set the pace. Will they still have one or two flat years? Of course they will. So if you look at organizations anywhere, that's where it's actually been. Nobody. And otherwise, you, your falls and your highs be really too extreme and you're living in a bubble.
1: When it comes to building organizations for the long term, how do you tend to look at optionality? Instead of putting all your eggs into one basket, how do you believe in creating optionality?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a fair question. I personally may not look at optionality because I'm not a I'm not a high plan B person. I'm a very plan A person. And I think in my early days and coming from my economic background and then not having the funding forces you to be a much more plan A person. So by DNA. Is that also because
1: you have limited resources
0: yes. and you're putting all of yes. it into one basket? Yes. You it cannot... may not be one basket, but it's about the fact that you don't have a choice. And then you look at things in a very willful manner. It doesn't mean that if I, you know, in the first five years of our business, there were at least four times and we were absolutely bankrupt. You're telling me about conversations today to have to about about 30 people who were letting go. At that time, we were like, we don't have anything to go with tomorrow. Those are 10 times more tougher conversations. But at that stage, did I have the conviction that we're not going to call it a day? And am I going to go back to my dad and say, OK, maybe I should have done my MBA? Absolutely not. It wasn't on the table. And I think, therefore, optionality, we have to be careful about that because it can be like a plan B. Nothing wrong with that. Good in MBA schools. But in real life, it means you're already having an exit. You're sitting in a movie theater and imagine every 15 minutes your eye goes on, if there's a fire, where's the fire exit? If there's a fire, where's the fire exit? You come to enjoy the movie, please, This is recreation time. Why are you worried about looking at the exit sign? Allow me to rephrase that
1: question in terms of diversity if you look you earlier talked about upgrades revenue model having been switched from largely coming from longer courses to now longer courses being just 20 so diversity
0: i'm all for which to us is the integrated which is also in
1: in 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 a way it's optionality because you created diversity of products and revenue sources within the organization that made it more resilient going
0: forward so how do you look at That That I think is a must if you're talking about diversity and integrated to me I'm a firm believer in that and I think you need to do that exactly that when we were at UpGrad up We had a single revenue stream of our partnership with universities and in two years I knew that we needed to lower that dependency plus as a value creation when you are building something for 10 years if I just look at one or two of these elements It won't work and therefore we needed to be in the entire chain of anyone above the age group of 18 So therefore for us building that but then you need owners you do need serious embedded people when you're building those situations. So you can have product diversity like a, like an FMCG would have, or you can have, you know, an insurance company would have product diversity. But when you're a banking and an insurance company, that's a different kind of diversity and optionality. It's like a bank should say, should I get into insurance? That's a different kind of an optionality. But if a bank is saying, I want to get into different aspects of banking, that's a diversification. And I think I just wanted to make that element of clarity that be careful because a lot of people and a lot of conglomerates have grown that way, right? I mean, the Tata Group has grown where they're in different allied fields, but you know, and their line at that stage in life was, you know, from salt to so and so. But today, it's not that easy to build companies on that basis unless you have very strong and deep pockets. And I think a company like Reliance has done that pretty well, where they've taken their core, they've moved from a B2B business to a completely B2C mentality. Will they have their setbacks and failures? Of course. Will there be strong learnings? Yes. Will will they be much more expensive than most people? Yes, because they're working at a scale. When you're working with velocity and scale, your problems will be deeper, but your upside will be there. So if you ask me today, my ratio for failure on successes, at least eight failures to two successes. And I think that's worked brilliantly for me and very well. And I would not stop on that context. And I know that sounds like, sorry, but how does that add up? And I'm saying, when you're failing, whatever your optionality is, it's a binary output, and you fail. It's a it's a minus one x. You made a bad decision of hiring somebody. You've invested one crore or hundred crores, and it didn't work. And it's a write off. It's a binary thing. But because you're playing with that ability in your mind to be able to have that elasticity of fail, when the upside happens, it'll be twenty x and thirty x. It won't be anything less than twenty x and thirty x. because but anyway, that- this is like investing. Right, um, a company going down takes
1: down your capital with you. Yeah. But a company really succeeding could yeah. potentially multiply your capital ten x. But 20X. that's my
0: mindset, right? Because then I won't, I won't get into this. I want to put one lakh rupees in hundred companies because none of them is going to move the needle for me, from from all points of view, right? this way or that way. So, to me, I'm saying the eight x is a minus eight x. But the two have to be minimum 20 to 30x. But I won't get to 20 to 30x if my ratio wasn't a minus 8x. Now, I'm not saying it like one algorithm, but I think you get the the thought process on that. But it's a different DNA for different people. That's just how I I look at it. Culturally and as a leader uh, within UpGrad,
1: how does this play out in reality? Because there is a very fine line that exists between doing new things for the sake of it And doing new things because you're trying to create diversity and optionality for the long term. Sometimes when a proposal comes to you and someone says, hey, we should do this. Or like, you know, let's say it's proposals A and B. And you're turning one down and saying yes to the other. What are you looking for?
0: in the... um, Well, firstly, I wouldn't do it because it just looks good or whatever else, because that is going to crash and die in any case in that. And I don't have somebody I want to appease. So if I'm not in appeasement mode, I would look at it. I think the second one is... Is this going to be a business that is going to be a minimum $100 million or $200 million in size in three to four years is a very important part. So large potential markets. or yeah, are... Absolutely. Otherwise, it's, otherwise you're not going to get it. Because now you're at a velocity which you're working. Now you're sitting there with four turbine engines then you can't start wearing a propeller jet and start figuring that out. So you've already gotten to that seat and you've got to look at it that way. Also, is this a 20 to 25% net margin business for me in three to four to five years? No problem. I'll invest whatever I think I need to invest. The... The problem here today is the mix-up between people thinking I'm in investment mode versus bad burn. And I think one of the cardinal rules we have in our conversation here is, I'm not interested in bad burn. It's off the table. This goes away. If you're saying, I'm going to throw more money at a problem, this is not the organization and I'm not the person to have that conversation. But you want to spend $50 million on an idea that we think is going to be an investment which is going to get there, and we could get it wrong. We could get it wrong. An investment and a burn are two different things. And I think we've lost the ability to identify that spending $50 million on, you know, a cricket IPL advertising is an investment. If it is, it better show up in a particular manner. You can't say it's brand and it's going to have a 10-year cycle because nobody has that context in life. And frankly, awareness does not build you credibility. Awareness just builds you awareness. It does not build you the credibility. So I think we get mixed up on that. So from our point of view, I would say we, we look brutally at bad burn, and we look very positively at that. And that's how we make our business decisions. And is it going to be a minimum size business and highly profitable over the next three to four years?
1: You earlier talked about ownership as well, which is which comes back and like links to this concept. What kind of an organizational structure exists at Upgrad that encourages ownership innovation, risk-taking, which are essentially, I mean, if you're going I to do I would say,
0: the- try to keep it very non-matrix, where dependency between one person doing something is not like, okay, I want to do this, but there's a central technology team and, until you know, so I'm not saying it's the ideal environment, but sometimes it works that way. So a little bit of 10% duplicity is perfectly fine if you're building owners. I'd much rather take, have a 10% higher cost model with 10 owners then try and take that 10% cost down and everyone is interlinked with people. So I think that's one, to create that environment. Second one is, as I said, being a strong catalyst yourself, where you sit down there and you, it's a grueling conversation. If I were to green light a, a creative project, I would spend a month or two months with the person. But at the end of the day, when it's green lit from the right talent to the right narrative to the right budget, then you're standing behind the visionary of that director to make that happen. And I think, therefore, that level of empowerment here when you're working with people is grill them and then let them own it and let them make their mistakes and know that you're going to stand by in spite of the mistakes, which are 10,000 times going to happen. Because anyway, I do make more mistakes than most people in that case. And you have to accept that. So I think those are two. Uh, The third is allowing them to think big, which they would not be able to do. And if if somebody comes in with a good idea and then you go back with the 40 questions that I ask that they don't have an answer for and then to take it to the next level is also very enthralling for most people. And fourth, and not such a high priority is, yes, they need to have a wealth creation opportunity that is linked to that. And But if you can't, if you just throw ESOP and say that's ownership, it doesn't work that way. Well. What does that mean? Meaning just that material part, If, it, if people say, I don't appreciate ESOPs. You will appreciate ESOPs if you're completely involved in the business and you know exactly what you're doing and you are an owner and you know, I know what I'm doing here. I can't think of a, another place where I'd get this opportunity. you got an owner.
1: I'm sorry, I'm still not clear because you said you got to talk about wealth creation
0: and it and cannot be creation just... Has a, one of 25% ah, of, of the whole pie, not 75% of the pie, is what I was saying. What metrics do you obsess over, if any? Yeah, I mean, it's not if any. I would say multiple metrics for different context, right? I mean, obviously... No, upgrade. We are talking about upgrade, yeah, so right? I mean, now. I think when you're looking at some of our businesses, obviously the element at the end of the day moves no, so, so, to... Sorry, skate, sorry skate, to yeah.
1: interrupt, but I will ask you that if, if you're to pick two or three metrics that are usually top of mind for you and that you're always kind of like, you know, I mean, what
0: might those be at the level of the upgrade business? Building right cost models, uh, really right cost models that are not got much of advanced booking because most of us actually start building cost models in anticipation of a revenue. Second one is strip the idealism. Sorry, I I wasn't clear about that, the cost model part. Normally we make a plan and therefore 50% of the revenue could be idealistic and a growth process because anyway, when you're a 100% growth business, you don't know what you don't know. And then you build a cost model for that. So to me, that metrics of seeing that no, the cost model is going to be at a much tighter level not commensurate with the idealism of the revenue is a very important coefficient number two are we going to be able to scale just so i understand this is the equivalent of someone
1: comes here and says this is going to be a hundred million dollar business so i want to spend 20 million dollars on it
0: and yes, you're essentially and saying say, that 20 yes, million dollars I, is the real let's cost go spend 40 million dollars on it but we'll spend it over a certain period of time and we'll have goalposts in between and there'll be a lot of rigor to figure out as we sow so shall we reap Because I'm not excited because you said it's $100 million. Because I'm not excited if I just hear $100 million. Got it. So that's an important... But that actually... in that covers a lot of metrics in that context, right? Because then comes hiring, the approach, your team member. Because the other part is when you're hiring people, most people today want to then immediately form a team. And I'm saying, no, if you're starting there, you're the best person. If I want to do that, I want to first be out there for the first 20 meetings I want to take on my own. I'll start building a team once I'm out there. So this caution of metrics of... Exactly. The cost reflection to me is a large metrics because it talks about how we think, how we plan, how much of that aspiration revenue is stripped out and how we're we building our cost model. Therefore, how are we building a team? How hands on do I want to be? What's the conviction? And am I going to build it slowly but rock solidly than this meteoric situation that could have a problem? And one of them, one out of one million will do that. But we're not here to green light things that is one out of one million. That will happen in any case at a particular point in time. So I think that's one overall core metrics. The second one, as I mentioned a little earlier, is scalability and profit margins over a projected period of time, as much as we can see there. I think the third one is consumer feedback and research in some form or the other, to me, is an important metrics. That doesn't mean that consumer feedback is going to give you all the answers, especially for new things that you're going to do. But we do need to have a dipstick, and we do need to be able to get some response on it, and as much early learning on it rather than trial and error process. Now, I know you're looking for things like CAC and whatever else. No, I'm not. To me, I'm I'm saying, no, those are are inbuilt in that. Yes, a business, what their net profit margins is, they're moving in a particular direction. I know that for two years, maybe the marketing is a little skewed. Sometimes the payroll can be skewed. So one or two years, you're more front-ended on payroll. Sometimes you're more front-ended on marketing. But at the end of the day, if it's not a bad burn, to me, that DNA works much better than getting into the... Because then I'm an analyst. I'm not a leader. Then it's those, you know, the VC guy is going to ask me, yeah, hey, but your CAC went from 23 to, and now it went from 23 to 24%. So, what are we going to do about that thought process? Will you come in the driver's seat and run it and tell me, oh, the fuel consumption today went where? Because you were speeding very heavily.
1: Are there any pet phrases that your colleagues and employees know you inside Upgrad mm. that they hear from you very often?
0: Um, again, I... I don't think I have too many pet phrases, but I keep the humor. Stock phrases? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, everyone has this thing where, okay, now this meeting, what is that one liner Ronnie's gonna come up with somewhere down the line that's gonna be whatever it may be? And it's actually momentary. I mean, I may have some long term ones where I, I do, I believe all glory is fleeting in some form, and that keeps you very grounded. Uh, and I think when you come from media, it is actually very, very fleeting in that context. Um, But I think, yeah, I do have a few one-liners in whatever I want to necessarily say. And I think people appreciate it. They enjoy it. It makes them feel... Slightly related question. What might be the top two or three adjectives
1: your colleagues use to describe you? Yeah. Difficult for me to say. I have to say. Um, I'm sure you've got some sense because, you know, you cannot have built so many businesses without some kind of a self-reflection of how you're seen as...
0: I think people would would say aggressive in some form or the other. I think people would uh, would definitely say it's difficult to match your energy or whatever else in that context. Uh, but also critically, they would say you're too hard a taskmaster, or it could be that you don't celebrate success as often as it needs to get succeeded. Uh, and sometimes it could be patience. Uh, yeah. What part of your weekly
1: calendar is filled in when you begin a week?
0: Uh, 15%, percent one five, one fifteen 15 to 20%. So how do you run your typical day or week? So I think the structured meetings are nice because then there's a certain rigor, where there's a rigor needed, you'll do that. The ones that need weekly should be very few because then you're really too micro-involved and you're not going to be able to get more objectivity and you'll become part of the problem in anything that one wants to do. But the rest of it is, it gives you thinking time, and then you're interacting with people on a one-on-one basis, which I do pretty often. Obviously, that doesn't mean I'm hauling them and saying drop everything and come back here. But that gives me a lot more being able to focus on things. So then you're the lovely outsider that's just coming in like a drone, coming in there with a specific thing. It allows you to observe, come back on a particular point, hold on to that point. There's a sense of uh, unpredictability. And maybe that could be one more word in that in the, in the earlier question of yours. Where I think it's important for leaders to be unpredictable. Why is that? I think it keeps you on your toes. It keeps everyone else on their toes also. Throughout your
1: career at UTV, as well as now at Upgrad, etc. Acquisitions, investments into newer products, etc. have been a recurring theme. And we talked earlier about optionality and diversity. How do you avoid the sunk cost fallacy and avoid throwing good money after bad? When do you know when to step back? Because this also connects back to some of the things that we discussed earlier about staying the course. Yeah. Especially as entrepreneurs, you're in something, you yeah. believe it, you think if I could only stick with it for another year or two, it'll but sometimes you just got to give it up. How like
0: have no, you I arrived at... Yeah, I think I'm brutal on, on sunk cost. I, I think sunk cost is a very important aspect of anything that you take. Because you've got to lick your wound and move on. Contrarian to the fact that I'm a very plan A person. Contrarian to the fact that I like to stay the course. But at the same time, you need to be brutal and because lick your wounds. Because staying the course also sometimes... Isn't it a very blurry line? Like When do you line. stay the course? Was when a, do you pull it, it back? Is, it is a blurry line. But when you have that self-conviction, you should stay on that self-conviction. You can keep questioning it, but if you start thawing the iceberg on your self-conviction, it won't help you in the long run. You still can make a mistake and after three years say, I could have, I should have cut the cord one year back. And I think that's perfectly fine. Which to like you that. said is hindsight wisdom. Yeah, and that's perfectly fine. You, yeah, you lost one more year of something in that process. It's okay because if the other way, if you become too khadoos on the other side, it's a bit of a problem there. So I think that would be the mix and match. How often do you change your mind about things that you strongly believe in? Quite often, quite often. Uh, in fact, I, I remember sending a WhatsApp to a group about 50 people just the day before yesterday saying my last Sunday's thoughts, you know, and I think one of the things is, I'm questioning everything more than I ever questioned before. I'm taking nothing for granted. I'm really taking nothing for granted. I'm nothing, taking nothing at face value. And that should not unnerve you. I'm just telling myself that. And the second one is, I'm going to change my mind more often than I've ever changed before. And that's the future. What triggered this, if I may ask? I think it was just Sunday, me thinking on a few things of how do I want to look at that? And I think the last six weeks, I've been dealing with this element of fragility in the world uh, where I think we're fooling ourselves. And I don't mean change just for the sake of change. And it's not to make people alarming because most people don't like change. But... I don't want to have a conversation where somebody says, oh, "Yeah, but we've been talking about this for three weeks now. You changed your mind?" Yeah, I have changed my mind about a thought process because in these three weeks, there's so much more that's happened in data and what we're looking at that it should be okay. It's kosher to change your mind, and a lot that's of people- very important because sometimes employees expect you
1: as you know the, the chairman of the board and the founder to not change your yeah. mind because yeah.
0: changing your mind is yeah. seen as how could you change your mind? Yeah. We expected you to stay the course. So what do you tell them? No, I think that, no, you need to communicate on that context of why you change your mind. The why and the communicating is very, very important. And we have to treat everyone on a basis where the IQ and EQ of everyone is on par. And I think my Swadeh's days have taught me that, you know. I think they've taught me a lot of that. When you're talking to the community and you just feel when you're having those conversations, you feel you're going to have a slightly different conversation with five women in a a special help group or an SEG group or in a village development committee. But they've got the same kind of ambitions. albeit obviously muted because they haven't seen a world that you may have seen. But what they want for their kids, what they want for a family point of view, what they want to do with something is pretty much the same.
1: So it does look like operating in these different spaces, media production, education, um, self-help groups, uh, etc., is is helping you see patterns that operate at incredibly, different,
0: incredibly, incredibly. But it's also I'm learning. I mean, the point is at this age I am learning. I am hundred percent learning. And yes, there's a lot of cross cross motivation, cross triggering, cross ideas. I mean, and, and none of I, them I allow you to stay complacent
1: because you can't no, in any of these no,
0: spaces. No, and uh, I'm saying if I've done a five thousand people webinar with. Uh, on should I do an MBA or not in Upgrad. I got four insights, and the next time I'm having a scripting meeting and we're doing something else somewhere, I'll say, I think we're missing the point here today. And I know in media, everyone is, like nobody's moved up, nobody's moved forward as far as I'm concerned, if somebody were to, if I were to say it from the outside here. But the audiences have moved incredibly. So learning from each one and learning, I mean, ambition and aspiration levels in rural India are very different from urban India, but yet they're not. The only gap between the two is their understanding of financial inclusion. If we injected the ability to train people in rural India or make them aware of what money can do for them, they'd be as ambitious as anyone in the city. And today, we work in a geography where 30% of the people in rural India migrated to Mumbai. And the first thing we used to do from the last seven, eight years is on Sundays, we would go out there and talk to the people from that community on those villages who moved here. And for about three years, reverse migration for me is a very important part of what we're doing. And it helped us during COVID a little bit, but it actually worked and boomeranged in many ways. But the psychology for which these people come here, they actually not have a better life. They earn 12,000 rupees here, but 10,000 is spent on a rank bed, and a very bad app, and you spend 2,000 rupees back. But if they went back and I could give them water for irrigation, And they can make 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 rupees and have no cost and expense. But they don't want to move back. Not because they can walk on Chopati Beach or Juhu Beach and have this thing. They feel it's a failure. I left my village for better prospects. I can't go with my tail between my legs. And therefore, for us to succeed on reverse migration, we created such aspirational jobs for them there that they were coming there because I'm coming there because I want to grow watermelon, bindi, and capsicum. And then they're ready to go. So that's the cultural aspect as well. That's the well, cultural aspect. Which, as Indians, we are all... And that's very... what I meant here, that if you... There are small gaps, and if you fill those gaps, everyone at the end of the day has pretty similar aspirations. And that's when my cross-learning, to come back to that. It's been... I mean, just to stick with that cross-learning um, theme. I'm trying to look at three
1: of the top things that you're involved in, right? So we're talking about upgrade, where you're running a company which produces education for college and yeah. upward. And yeah, I would not cetera, use the word education, right? but definitely learning. Learning. S- learning. Yeah, Fair point. Um, and you're charging them for it. Then you're running Swades, which is a non-profit, which is trying to figure out how to make people more economically independent and yes. in villages. And then you have RSVP, which is a production house, which is essentially, like you talked about, just producing movies, which is in in a completely, it's operating at a space where you're, Viewing scripts, making movies, which operates at a yearly or multi-year timeline, yes. which is much more complex. Yes, not like all of them look like very distinct and almost like unique problems. Yeah, the conventional wisdom is that you should do things that you're good at. And try to replicate more of them you seem to be breaking that in some ways
0: by doing things which are very different yeah but i'm not doing career planning at 67 i'm, <laughs> I'm doing what i want to do at 67 i'm not doing career planning at 67. but should more people do
1: if it's possible and to their own abilities more things like the generalist or like the do more things that satisfy you
0: in oh, some yeah. senses have I mean, been I disappearing on to the last think, part yeah. of the sentence that more and more today, the root cause when you're looking at that work-life balance is if you're enjoying it, you don't have a work-life balance. And, you know, people, when you ask, well, why is my attrition in media less than my, my media? There's a certain passion. There's a certain binding and people own it. Like when you're on a project or whatever else, you own it. There's no optionality that says I'm going to abort this. You're, you're running... You're sitting there with your editorial the team. These people, the, your team, you don't need to really want, worry that much about motivation as compared to some other companies because of the simple reason you've given them the freedom of expression of a completely different platform. And because of that, they can't think of a better place where they'd have this this passion to follow and earn a salary. That's, that's ideal. That's nirvana. What do you think everyone around you might not be telling you? Yeah, that I maybe talk too much sometimes. Um, uh, Maybe that I change my mind more often than I I should in that context. Um, That you've got to let people sometimes be and not set the pace for everything at a scorching pace in some points of view. Uh, That you're never always right. What's the best time and place to give you feedback? Anytime, anywhere. I don't think there's a modality in that. I think that way... That, I would say, if you talk to anyone, anyone there, even in our social space and, you know, our, our workers, we've got 300 people working in Spades, And those conversations, when we sit down with them on a mat and have food together and then everyone is talking, nobody's thinking they're talking to somebody else in that context. So I think, I believe now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I can never be, but if you ask me my question, I think, no, I think nobody has a problem that says, uh, you're hierarchical and I can't, you're, you're not approachable. At UpGrad... Are there methods
1: or ways in which you encourage people to both give feedback and
0: solicit feedback more frequently and in a way which is non-threatening? Because that's one of the I, hardest I, I things. I think the in best way I can do it is by leading from the front. And that's the best way you can do that. Because just keep saying that to people won't make any sense. And the reason I'm I do talk to the second level and third level of people, which I don't think is in that structure, is just so that everyone understands, but if is talking like this, then it can't be that bad. He's saying it as it is. He's doing whatever he's saying or whatever else. There's not a question, he's ducking. So if he's, if somebody asks me 10 questions and I'm not ducking the answer for that, to me, that's a culture statement. And then my colleagues will also understand that, but he was quite clear about it. Why can't you just tell me it as it is? When someone comes to you at UpGrad uh, with a problem
1: and they expect you to kind of give them the answer, When are the times and how is it that you kind of tell them without solving it
0: for them, but essentially tell them to figure it out? Because there's, again, this fine line between... Most of the time it's about figuring it out. Most of the time it's about asking them five questions where where I think they would need to feel, okay, I need to go back and think more about this. Obviously, I haven't given this a thought or that a thought. It's very rare that one would say no... This is not how it's going to work and this is how it could. it could be binary on a legal settlement or it could be binary when it's a little bit on government go- governance issues, where it's no, whatever be the business compulsion, this is not what we're going to do. But 99 times it would be about discussing it and going back with questions. What's your philosophy when it comes to coaching
1: and mentoring younger folks, developing
0: leaders, et cetera, within Upgrad? So, you know, I, I don't think I grew up with too much of mentoring, the people that I really grew up with, and when somebody asks you who's been your mentors, who's your role models, I think I'm making movies today because I think we lack role models. I think we need to make situations where we haven't. I mean, in India, we haven't used our soft power. We haven't created role models. I'm, today, when I'm making a movie on Sam Manick's show, Field fashion, the point is 19. I know 99 out of the 100 people have not heard of Sam Manikshaw, or if they've heard of him, doesn't know what he's. Heard, so what's a Field Marshal? I mean, whatever. How do I make that into a role model where the younger and Gen Z are going to come for that movie? Not because, sorry, who was Sam Manick's show? But who is this role model? Who was this charismatic person who was a strategist and yet apolitical but wanted to do that and liberated Bangladesh but did whatever else? So to me, I'm very obsessed with the fact that we do need a lot of role models here. We need to build that. I have not... So for me, mentoring the best mentoring I've always got is when people have asked me questions for which I didn't have an answer and I felt like a fool saying, why didn't I think of that? So that's what it would be. And I think it should not be in droves. It's not, if you start giving advice to people, you're dead. It's a little bit like my mom or my mother-in-law telling me, don't worry, get married. You all will live a very happy life. I guarantee you. It doesn't work in life.
1: But what's, what's the equivalent of that at the founder or CEO level? The equivalent of that motherly advice. Yeah. And and what's the equivalent of that wrong motherly advice? No, so and it could what be what many things. Be
0: a, you know, if there's a, is a, if there's a business idea that we want to pursue, it'll be, have you really thought it through? I'm with you. And then at the end of the day, once it's thought through, then we'll back it to the core. And that's what it will be. And Then you have to back it. And then we'll figure it out. It's okay. At the end of the day. What have you learned
1: about yourself? You, you wear a lot of hats. But what have you learned about yourself as a parent?
0: As a parent. Um, you know, I think I've been blessed with a daughter who's been substantially independent of what he wants to do. And I think, so firstly, I've been a single parent for a fair period of my time also. So there was an incredible learning, right, at that particular stage when you have a young daughter, at five and six, and you're planning a holiday where there's two of you. And so that's been a very different learning in the year, earlier days. And I think the second learning was when I remarried and how does that mean? And you know, how do you transition that for for a child? And I think then it's about sharing values, which I think we've all done. You know, my daughter's mom has done, I've done, my wife Zarina has done. You share certain values and then you just let that person be extremely independent because pushing down any point of view doesn't necessarily work. Um, across the board it, it hasn't and I, I think I've I've learned with my parents who were extremely gracious I'm sure they went through paranoia because they didn't have a bank balance to bail me out and yet they were telling me go out and do go out and light your bulb kind of situation at some stage in life and were they very very scared for all the times when things would go wrong and would they always be tracking it from the outside but at the dinner table asked me and I would give them monosyllabic answers not to worry them yeah so I've learned from there and then you need to see that it doesn't happen to you on the reverse side.
1: If one were to shut you up in a room with no internet for 24 hours, what would you do?
0: I'd be fine. I'd be perfectly fine. What would you do during those 24 hours? Um, today, I think I, I would, I hope I would be able to do some reading in that context and, and look at a couple of things. What, but do, I'd make, what do you I'd, read normally? I read a lot non fiction I'm you know I, I think right now I'm reading, reading a lot on Buddhism um, and um, a little bit of afterlife and things like that not because of your age I think it's just curiosity of a very different nature um, I hope one or two scripts are left behind for me to read in that room so there'll be a fair amount of that mixture of reading but I'm a loner actually I so I can I can walk on a beach for without internet I don't need to be in a locked room but I, let's assume that if I was not having access to internet, which is more your question. I think thoughtfulness is incredible. I would need to have a little bit of paper and pen to write down and jot my notes because your mind normally is quite distracted. And I think today I spend a lot of time to try and be a little bit in the present rather than the past and the future, which is mostly the place we live in kind of situation. So if I had a a day without any distractions, I think my focus to get to here and now would be strong.
1: Do you often seek out newer experiences or products? And if so, has there been something that you've discovered during the last six months or perhaps? I mean, yes and no, in
0: a curiosity part, yes. But, you know, today, if I want to travel, I'd like to go back to the same places sometimes. But, you know, some of the breaks we've taken in the last uh, year, we've gone to the southernmost part of Indonesia and sat somewhere and only done diving. And we've been to the Galapagos Islands and, so there's a lot of that, that part that you would do, and similarly in India in many parts. But there's a certain part of you that also gets into a form of habit, right? I mean, the kind of room, and if you feel this is a hotel I've stayed in, whatever. So you're, I think it's a you're a good glutton of habit with a little bit of push. Am I a tech gizmo kind of guy? No, I'm not. So that new next lightning product, I need to get my son-in-law or my uh, chief of staff to help me with a couple of things and not in an embarrassing way. I know what to do with it afterwards. Which morning of the week do you look forward to the most? Is there such a day? No, I don't think so. I mean, I've never thought about it like which morning. No, I don't think there is. On a scale all.
1: of one to ten, how happy are you with your life? Eight. Wow, that was quick.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think so. I think I think there's a... Because I, mean, I think about it a lot. So that's why it was quick. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. No, lovely. Very, very good interaction.